0: I thought that this was somebody I could have something in common with. Rock and roll, makeup, fire, and of course, mayhem.
1: On Nitro, I proved to the entire world that at any given time I could become the WCW champion. That's why
0: this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this.
2: This, this, this. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. We are proudly part of the post wrestling family. I am Brian Mann, and joining me is my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. Now, Nate, we've been on this road off and on for over a year now, but can you believe it? This is episode 25. We are halfway through with this thing, buddy, and and my question for you is how much longer before we can bail on this?
0: Uh, I didn't want to do this out in public, but since you put me on Front Street, uh, I just want to you know, wish you a happy 25th anniversary of our <laughs> very first episode of Keep It 2000, of course, the universe's favorite interracial cross-generational pop culture podcast devoted to the greatness and the genius of one Vincent J. Russo. And, uh, you know, I just, just want to say happy anniversary, Brian.
2: I appreciate it. I, I have a good feeling that we're going to be slightly better than Raw 25, um, aiming it, you know, kind of low, although we do have many of the same performers that were on that show on this uh, episode we're going to talk about today. And, I, um, I was gonna
0: say, do you want me to tell Ralphus to come in now or later? He's playing <laughs> poker right now.
2: Well, much like that show, we today also have a returning guest. Now, Nate, our guest today, he's been on the show before, but it was an episode where unfortunately you weren't able to join us, so so this is a first timer for you.
0: Yes, this this gentleman was uh was I guess you could say the sacrificial lamb. You know he. Mm-hmm. He died so that I might live at least for one week. Um <laughs> uh, and, and I didn't have to watch that uh birth, I guess you could say, of the new blood and then the reboot with Russo and Bishop. So I, I have to thank this brother for uh you know stepping in and 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 taking the bullet. So uh you know I could I could retain my sanity at least for one week.
2: Yes, uh, we shouldn't delay it uh, much longer. Uh, uh, he is a former WWE creative member. He's the host of the Writer's Room on MLW, and he is the man behind Randy Orton's favorite Twitter account. Robert Karpalis is with us.
1: Farouk, I've got, I've got three nines. Le- leave him there. i got to go take this call. Sorry, I'm, I'm still in that APA poker game from Raw 25. Uh, it's a barn burner. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll never guess. Uh, the Berserkers showed up. <laughs> uh, for about 30 seconds. Uh, he went all in. Uh, I now own a Viking's helmet. So uh, this has been a pretty good day for me. Uh, cool. thank, you, uh, thank you guys for inviting me back into the insanity. Um, I'm glad I have really nice health insurance because it took a lot of <laughs> medication to get me normalized after watching a three-hour dawn of the Vince Russo era Nitro.
2: That's the thing. You were here for that. So it'll be interesting to compare and uh, contrast what you thought of this because slight... Tease, Vince Russo did not write this show, and we'll get into that uh, drama later. Compare and contrast, was this show better than the last one? It
1: was shorter. It was,
2: <laughs> it was shorter.
1: They, uh, this, was, this was better because in the, in the last one, there were about nine Jeff Jarrett entrances throughout the <laughs> entire episode. <laughs> and this one, you really only had like three Jarrett segments. So it was a really nice downgrade.
2: Well Nate, just as we said, there were major changes behind the scenes on this episode of Nitro. There were major changes on the Billboard charts. Now for the last 2 months, Santana's Maria Maria has just been on a tear. Nothing can dethrone this thing. Well, this week that'll change Nate. We have a new queen. Mm. And it is Aaliyah with Try Again.
0: If you brush don't see, brush don't see. You dust yourself up and try again. You can dust it. Succeed,
2: you I loved the song at the time. I was a massive fan. Um, of course, it would be Aaliyah would pass away the next year, right? Or was it this year?
0: I believe it was the next year, uh, but the fact checkers can uh, give us the four one one on that. But yeah, this this was the jam, Brian. This was mm-hmm. not only the the height of Aaliyah, but you could make the argument, despite the fact that he would go on to uh, bigger and better things, such as making videos with WWE divas. Uh, this was the height of Timberland as a producer.
2: Uh, I would say before he kind of stepped out of the shadows and you know made himself the because I, I like some of the stuff on that on that first Shockwave album. But yeah, before you know it was Big T Timberland. You know, get a look at me. I, I mean, yeah, this is a this is a great track, Robert. Do you have uh, uh, any fond memories of this track?
1: This was the first song that I burned onto a mix CD Ooh. from downloading an MP3. This was song number 1 on that mix on that mix CD. Mm-hmm. So, this is it's it's a little it's it's bringing up a lot of emotions right now, namely I can't believe I was listening to this song in 2000 and wanted <laughs>
2: it on a CD. <laughs> um, I'm curious what else ended up on that CD or did you dedicate the entire
1: CDR to this track? Uh, no, it was, it was an eclectic mix. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to, I want to hope that there was some Kid Rock and Flow Rider on there <laughs> and maybe some Pitbull just to keep it with it. Actually that back then it would have been Limp, and, and Kid have been Limp Rock Biscuit and, and Kid <laughs> Rock. Yeah. A little bit of Creed. Uh, no, no, I, am I'm, I'm a, I'm a Jewish fellow. So <laughs> Creed, uh, you know, they wouldn't take me I'm going down low as far as they're concerned, <laughs> but, uh, I fully remember that song. And I want to say, as a weird novelty, the South Park theme song was on there. Mm. Because <laughs> there was this, you know, kids, Napster was such a weird thing where... Right, because you wouldn't you download whole download. albums. You would yeah, just, whatever would song
2: just popped into your brain, you're like, oh yeah, I should I should definitely have fucking uh, Ico Ico uh, uh,
1: at, at a moment's notice. Well, my grandma and your grandma sitting by the fire. Um <laughs> Kids, that's from the movie Rain Man. I don't know why I just keep saying kids. Like, that's just my—I'm I'm 150 <laughs> years old doing this episode, um, which, is, which is fine. Uh, this, this show aged me terribly. Well, your children are there with you, right? Uh, my, my children are, are <laughs> thankfully home. I am actually recording this uh, live from the BB&T Center Arena, mm-hmm. which hosted uh, Bash at the Beach uh, 99, I want to say. Mm.
2: A, probably
1: a—certainly a, a, a more purchased— after the beach than the one that we're currently in the build to. Uh, yes, but nowhere near as memorable.
0: Mm.
1: At least I think it's going to be memorable uh, as we're watching this live in mm. June of two thousand. <laughs> yeah, According you got to keep on.
0: the you got to keep the spacetime continuum uh, in in the proper order, brother, up here on the satellite. But Brian, this this record to me, like not just try again, but the whole Aaliyah album that had a uh, rock the boat. Mm. We need a resolution more than a woman. Like this was. A star turn that uh, was short-lived, because uh, like we said, she passed in uh, a one, but this was kind of her getting away from R. Kelly, which is always a good thing, I would suggest. For most people. Uh, and kind of getting into that, you know, Timbaland, Missy, Magoo, remember Magoo kids? Mm-hmm. Now I'm doing it, Robert. Uh, <laughs> and the Neptunes, like this was Neptune's pre Pharrell, capital p Pharrell, uh skateboard P, if you will. And it's like that that had a lot of uh, energy, like just, it, it was a lot of young, hungry people trying to make good good uh, work, and it it felt very much like the WCW undercard. Uh, unfortunately for the WCW undercard, I don't think they ever had a success as high, uh, at least in 2000, as, uh, as Try Again.
2: Well, speaking of Try Again, that is uh, exactly what WCW would do with this sort of soft reboot. Uh, Robert, every time you come around, Nitro reboots just for you. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into this week's Nitro. Where the hell are you guys going? Nash is out there! Hey Russo! Here's nutty! Nash has become
1: violent and vicious!
2: Our show begins with a recap from the previous Thursday's Thunder. Nash stalked Russo, David Flair was revealed to be having an affair with Miss Hancock, and the triple threat reformed from ECW. However, what's most important is what happened after Thunder. Now, Nate... Uh, this company has seen a lot of creative regimes in the first half of this year. Russo was in, then he was out, then Kevin Sullivan was in, then he was out, then Russo and Bischoff were in, and now Russo is out again. Um, Mm. the full story behind what happened was the Friday before this episode, Russo quit because, I'm going to ask you, Nate, what, what do you think the ludicrous request from (laughs) Turner was that made Russo draw a line in the sand and walk away?
0: Ooh, given with what uh, we've seen from the last couple of episodes, um, I'm going to say that the request was, you got to get rid of the red liquid.
2: It was not that, but I do believe that the red liquid is gone. Um, the line of the sand was, there were certain performers that Turner wanted Russo to continue to use, but he refused because they wouldn't do the shitty booking that he told them to do. <laughs> Most notably, he was pissed that Lex Luger uh, would not job to... Chuck Palumbo, he was pissed that Miss Elizabeth didn't want to wrestle, and he was pissed that Kimberly Page would not do a physicality angle with Scott Steiner. So, because of that, he drew a line in the sand. He said that if you allow the performers to dictate what they will and won't do on TV, then the inmates are running the asylum, which makes Mm. some level of sense. Um, But yes, it was a refusal to put Lex Luger back on TV that uh, he walked away from. But I must also say, Kimberly Page is done. Uh, Nate, unfortunately, uh, the Queen, the Queen K is done.
0: Uh, you know what, Brian? I, I know earlier in this episode I said we were in this for the long haul, <laughs> but upon upon hearing that uh, that nugget of truth, uh, I'm reevaluating everything. Like I'm reevaluating my entire reality up here on the satellite. This this entire partnership. Uh, I'm gonna need a minute. I'm gonna need a minute.
2: She burned too bright for this world, Nate. Uh, so so Russo has said. I'm done. He quits. Everyone knows he's just throwing a tantrum that he will come back. But what that means is that in the interim, tonight's show was written by a committee that was headed by Terry Taylor. And I welcome this change. I don't know about about you two, but this was a far more enjoyable show than we've gotten in in many weeks.
0: Because it made sense. Because we weren't given uh, 50 things per segment because they were actually logical reasons for the wrestlers doing the things that they were doing. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I was, uh, this this show isn't still isn't great. Let's let's not get it twisted. Uh, <laughs> but by the standards of the time, this was an improvement from what we've seen the last few weeks.
2: Now, I think we need a bit of a sanity check. Robert, have we just lost our minds? Uh, do we need someone yes. who has a little bit better perspective
1: to <laughs> set us straight? This, this was, um almost like you, you could use this as a master class to teach why WCW went out of business, <laughs> almost segment by segment. Um, you just see where if it's like a bad horror movie, if I'm like screaming at the television, like if you went left instead of right, you wouldn't have walked into the, the killer with the knife that's going to ruin your company. <laughs> and almost every single segment on the show, and I will point it out where it's, You know, we complain about the current product in in 2018, but it is uh, Shakespeare and Sorkin compared to some of the stuff you saw on this episode of Nitro. So, the changes are pretty evident from the very first
2: segment. The new blood arrives at the building in two limos. Ernest Miller tells Jarrett that both Russo and Bischoff are gone this week and that he is in charge. Yes, the two leads of this television program are no longer around. Mm-hmm. Just then, members of R&B security run up and warn the cat that there is a situation in the ring. We cut to the ring where Horace Hogan is staging a sit-in. He calls out Goldberg for taking out his uncle, Hulk, last week.
0: So Horace Hogan wants one thing tonight, and he ain't leaving this ring until he gets it. He wants Goldberg in the ring, and I want to be
2: next. The cat then comes out and says that Goldberg is just too busy for Horace. Cat says that he is in charge and his first rule is to institute a no interference rule. If you had any doubt that Russo was gone, this was your confirmation right here. I, <laughs> I, I, I was so close to just like retroactively just tweeting Ernest Miller to thank him 18 years later for instituting this rule. <laughs> just then, Kevin Nash, Scott Steiner, and Medeja walk out. So the cat is now stuck in the aisle between Nash on the stage and Horace in the ring. Nash tells Miller to give uh, Horace his match with Goldberg, because the cat can do whatever he wants. Steiner then says that since he can't fight Russo, he wants to fight the cat. So the cat declares himself too pretty to wrestle, and instead gives Steiner a world title shot against Jeff Jarrett tonight. Nash says that they aren't done yet because he has a request for himself. Nash demands that he and Cat have a fight for Scott Hall's contract. The cat reluctantly agrees, and Nash praises Ernest Miller's job as commissioner. The terrified Ernest Miller then runs into the crowd. A fan clearly tried to grab Miller here, and we get a brief shot of him roughing up the audience member. (laughs) Um, I gotta say, again, by the standards of the time... I really liked this segment. Uh, We hit the ground running. Horace is already in the ring. We announced this new rule. We set up our big matches for the night. Um, There was no worked bullshit with Russo or Bischoff. This actually felt like the beginning of a wrestling show. Not a stellar wrestling show. Not a wrestling show I'm necessarily going to make time for every week. But this at least made sense as a wrestling program. And I always find Ernest Miller such an entertaining presence on TV. Yeah,
0: the Cats were pretty good. And I think this show for me started off on a high note, fellas, because, and, and I get what Robert is saying, that you know he's our test subject, so he's not exposed to these extreme experiments every week. But when you're in the bubble of Vince Russo and in the bubble of WCW in the year 2000, you need glimmers of hope that can uh, lift your spirits, such as our, our dearly departed Queen Karen Jarrett. But my spirits were immediately buoyed when this show started and ernest miller gets out of the limo and his limo driver is the one and only ice train (laughs) i'm here for that let's go ice trains getting a check ernest miller's in charge we got no russo no bischoff let's have a fun show and then my spirits were immediately deflated when the person that starts off the show in the middle of the damn ring is horace hogan who is here to get revenge for his uncle that he betrayed a month ago, but now blood is thicker than water and, and Horace is here to fight the new blood. And I I didn't have time for Horace Hogan, but I did enjoy the uh, the Ernest Millerness of it all, Robert.
1: So my very first note that I wrote was when I saw the limo driver come out, I thought that was him. And I'm like, does that make me racist that I think this guy looks just like Iceman? <laughs> so the fact that it was him is like a, a weight off, The best thing about this show, by far, and I encourage everyone to go back and watch this, they are live from Billings, Montana. Yes. And you will know this because they mention it about 25 Mm -hmm. times during the show, as if this is Madison Square Garden. (laughs) It's like, we are here from Billings, Montana. The Billings. The Billings. Uh, Tony Shabani actually says, for the first time ever, folks. Yes, from Big Sky Country, um, (laughs) which is a thing. (laughs) Um, I love Horace Hogan because Horace Hogan looks like a combination of just incredible. And the guy from Seinfeld who was the bookie that Jerry breaks his thumbs, it's, <laughs> it's uncanny. It's like if they had a kid, it's Horace Hogan. Cat um, was, you know, the cat was fine. It was weird to see Pyro. It made WCW feel bigger than Raw. It's true. Raw, Raw has uh, exchanged that in. and And I love... The cat, if for nothing else, than for using the John Lovitz, yeah, that's the ticket, pet <laughs> phrase. Even in 2000, that's a, little, that's a little far.
2: In a production truck, the perfect event Chuck Palumbo and Sean Stasiak tell the crew to play a tape of them arriving at the building. It's all part of an elaborate ruse to ambush Rick Steiner and Tank Abbott. However, as soon as they exit the truck, Rick Steiner and Tank Abbott are waiting to beat them up. <laughs> In his office, the cat is frantically searching through his briefcase for Scott Hall's contract. Jeff Jarrett and Mike Awesome then barge into the office, pissed that Steiner is getting a title shot. Miller then makes Awesome the guest referee for the match tonight. An R&B security member comes in to tell Miller that the crowd is getting restless and that he should probably book a match. Miller tells him to send out the Spice Girls, by which he meant three count. Um, gotta say, Ernest Miller, still great. Uh, he was so funny here. There's even a little thing at the end where instead of Scott Hall's contract, he found his own contract and made a joke about how he needs a raise.
1: I don't think they know how contracts work. Um, <laughs> they treat Scott Hall's contract like it's Bart Simpson's soul written on a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah. don't physically have it. <laughs> it exists. Like there's a photocopy of it. Like WCW, I know is an unorganized mess. But I've met the WCW uh, attorney who was the counsel at this time. I guarantee you, they had a Xerox copy at this time, <laughs> and it would hold up.
0: <laughs> oh, but Ernest Miller to me is one of those guys, that, and I don't want this to sound like uh, like uh, an insult or or I'm throwing shade at the cat. But Ernest Miller should never wrestle. Ernest Miller should only talk and wear fancy suits and shiny shoes and and be a figurehead. Like, I I dig Ernest Miller in this role. I did not enjoy Ernest Miller when we had to do his matches earlier this year, Brian. Mm -mm, Uh, This is a good role for him. But unfortunately, he is in a stable with a lot of people where their only role is is basically to talk. You know, when you talk about Jeff, uh, not Jeff Jarrett, even though he does do a lot Mm -hmm. of talking. (laughs)
2: <laughs> he's the world champion never gets asked a question
0: <laughs> uh, he does a lot of talking backstage like fussing at people that's, that's fussy Jeff Jarrett like how long has it been since Jeff Jarrett cut a promo I mean he's got Russo it's been he's like got a Bischoff month. Yeah. Like there's, there's so many people in the New Bloods that do talking and that's all they do and I feel it, it takes the focus away from the important figures but I would like to see more of Ernest Miller just in this role and not, not wrestling Booker T because I, I don't need that
1: I like how everybody in R&B security is basically just wildfire Tommy Rich. <laughs> like no matter, it's like it's just a different haircut, but it's the same guy, and it's it's absolutely uh, incredible.
2: Our opening match of the night is a six man tag between the Young Dragons and Three Count, which is quite the departure from our typical hardcore brawl. Um, this thing starts off with all all six men in the ring. Kaz hits a really great spin kick to Moore at one point. Helms tags in and hits a sunset flip for a two. Uh, These guys are making the most of their time, really cramming in every spot they possibly can. The audience is actually pretty hot for this too, chanting three count sucks. Jimmy Yang tags in and goes wild clearinghouse. Kaz and Yang then go up top, but Moore trips them up. Jamie's son runs in and gets clotheslined by Evan. Three count then hits their group face buster on Jamie's son for the win. Three Count goes to dance in celebration, but the camera quickly zooms out as Lance Storm makes his Mm. surprise debut with a missile dropkick onto Helms. Storm sends all three members packing and hits a somersault dive to the floor. Storm then runs into the crowd as the announcers wonder what he's doing here. Um, By the standards of the time, what we've been shown, this was actually six people having a wrestling match. I thought... Pretty well, and I am just so happy that Lance Storm has finally arrived. I am the biggest Lance Storm fan. Mm -hmm. I think him and Booker T are the two brightest shining stars that, you know, here in the dying days of this company. I'm so glad he's here, and I'm so glad that they allowed him to debut with a really impressive uh, physical uh, stunt here, because that that is his strongest, you know, um, attribute is his wrestling. And so kind of doing a twist on the Scott Hall Uh, debut but purely physical and purely high spots um I really like this angle at the end
0: yeah I wouldn't even use the qualifier by the standards of this time I enjoyed this segment from start to finish this might have been my favorite part of the show because not only did we get a pretty good match between the young dragons and three count and I will continue to espouse the theory that in the year 2000 Kaz Hayashi was the best wrestler in the world. I don't care what anybody says. But also, the debut of Lance Storm was, was amazing. And I think, you know, Robert brought up the Simpsons episode where Bart sold his soul. And one of my favorite lines from that episode is when Bart's like, I'm familiar with the works of Pablo Neruda. And for, when Lance Storm runs out, it's like, oh, I'm familiar with the work of one Lance Storm, the Impact player from ECW. When I saw this in the year 2000, I was over the move. Because I was somebody that was at this at this point in time, I might have been more into ECW than I was even WCW. And to see Lance come across that guardrail and and uh, you know hit that great move to the outside on three count, I was like, okay, things are changing, things are getting better. Things you know, I had a lot of uh, hope at the time for what WCW could become with with some of these newer talents. Uh, looking back and knowing kind of the end of WCW, it's a bit bittersweet, but. If we're looking at just this segment in a vacuum, Robert, I think this is a good debut for Lance. I think
1: everything about this segment was great and indicative of where, you know, I said, you know, they veered right. Um, Three Count, the Young Dragons all looked fantastic. And these guys were much in the same way ECW, Paul Heyman's crutch for filling time was just put Tajiri, super crazy and Guido out there and just let him kill time. This should have been a two to three segment match the crowd was really into everybody that was out there everybody got a moment mm-hmm. to look good uh and then the Lance Storm debut and the great thing about Nitro at this time is when somebody's good they stick out like a sore thumb and the moves <laughs> that Lance was doing were it, it, everything looked crisp everything looked real everything looked like it connected there were great high spots and and I reached out to Lance and I and I asked him about about this debut and the the two nuggets that he gave me that were uh, great was, number one, he comes out there in this ridiculous sweatshirt mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that, that belongs to the fallen angel, Christopher Daniels. Uh, oh. he, he found out he was going to be on the show. Uh, this was John Laurinaitis' first segment he ever produced. Hey. Was this segment. And he goes, you know, we're, we're going out there. You're going to do the run in and he wasn't wearing something appropriate for it, so he took Christopher Jane Daniels' sweatshirt, and that sweatshirt debuted before Christopher Daniels did. Um, (laughs) Actually, no, Christopher (laughs) Daniels was
2: seen in a backstage segment uh, like four months ago. So his face has been seen, but he has not had an in-ring debut.
1: hasn't had, sorry, it has made an in-ring debut. Yes. Um, Getting technical. The second note that he gave me was, he said, you know, I I was on a high, I hop over the guardrail, as I'm running out, I knee a fan. (laughs) <laughs> and just slam my knee right into this guy, and you can very briefly see him say, "Like, hey, sorry," as he's running. I did the sorry Canadian to really make it authentic <laughs> uh, as he's running out. So, so go back on the WWE Network, and when you see Lance hopping up, I think it's on the second rail. He fully ne- he fully knees some dude in the stomach.
2: <laughs> Backstage, David Flair searches for Daphne. Elsewhere, Goldberg is shown arriving for work. Now, the overnight improvements on this show. Nate, are almost laughable as we go to Horace Hogan, who is being interviewed not by Pamela Paulshock, but by Mike (laughs) Tanay. Clearly there's been a regime change backstage. Tanay asks Horace if he's crazy for calling out Goldberg. Horace rambles on and on and ends by saying that he's going to shoot Bill Goldberg tonight. Um, It's pretty clear he doesn't have his uncle's charisma, but he certainly has his uncle's improv skills.
0: (laughs) One other thing. I'm going to end this interview right here. Goldberg, if you think I'm afraid to take a bullet for Hollywood, Hogan, you're absolutely crazy. But there's only one problem. Tonight, I'm firing the bullets right at you.
2: Big Vito then comes out to defend the hardcore title against his former tag partner, Johnny the Bull. We are shown footage from Thunder of Vito officially turning on Johnny. Uh, this one starts in the aisle with Big Vito whacking away with a kendo stick. They then brawl around the crowd and into the backstage area. We get the standard backstage hardcore stuff, the trash cans, a few production crates. Uh, This thing is all Vito. It's pretty clear who's going to be getting the push of these two coming out of this. They fight onto some scaffolding, and Vito hits a... Pretty impressive impaler off of scaffolding and through a table below. Uh, This match was nothing, but this was, you know, kind of a flashy spot to continue to get Vito over. Um, This is the faintest of praise, but Big Vito continues to be the best WCW hardcore champion of the year 2000.
0: (laughs) Oh, man, yes. That is, uh, yes, that is being, like, being the, uh, I don't know. I was going to say something offensive. I'm not going to do it because I'm not Vince Russo. I have an internal filter. Uh, yeah, Brian. This match was like a a I don't want to say a coming out party, but it certainly was more of a focus put on Big Vito. We got this not only in this match, but also last week, uh, and and you know his interactions with Terry Funk, and and I think Big Vito is somebody who a lot of the fans might not give a ton of credit to but he's always been good in the in the places that he's been put and he's always done what has been asked of him and i think you know there's a there's a charisma to Vito there's a there's a likability to Vito maybe not so much with this particular character but i think with just the, just the guy mm-hmm. you know whether he was in ECW or you know his later run in the WWE like big vito was one of those guys that i think robert can do what you ask him to do. Uh, you know, he's not going to be your top guy, but he's, he's, he's a good person to have on the card. I think Vito
1: um, shows why having a hardcore title for WWE and WCW was so crucial because it lets them put a spotlight on a guy they're not doing something with and kind of seeing what happens. You know, certain guys like uh, Crash Holly really mm-hmm. made his bones as a hardcore champion, Norman Smiley in WCW. You, you kind of give somebody you're not doing something with a weird opportunity. And the way they were positioning Vito, you know, was, hey, he's trying to make his bones as a hardcore wrestler. And having Terry Funk there definitely helped from a production. end, I was super impressed um, by the, the scaffolding that they had set up there, because that's not just something that's lying around an arena there's usually not just 20 random pipes uh, Mm -hmm. bouncing in the corner (laughs) and then beautiful scaffolding. So WCW took the time to put that together. Uh, They can't assemble most weekly shows, but they can (laughs) assemble this. And they used it perfectly. And to your point with Vito, when when I was on Creative, uh, Vito was uh, the toughest man to ever wear a dress. Yep. Yes. Not only did he make the most of this, originally when SmackDown was moving to Friday nights, um, it was supposed to be Vito against JBL for the world title. That was ah. that was the main event we had penciled in. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the, the network uh, chimed in and they said, hey, it'd be better if it was Batista against JBL, uh, which, you know, it's six and one half dozen the other, but we acquiesced. And Vito was <laughs> super, he, he did a pre-tape, he uh, was super cool about it. He's like, look, you know what, uh, Dave, I'm going to give you my shot, but when you win it, I get a shot down the road and was a total professional. So mm-hmm. as far as veto goes here, uh, it was it was good. Back in the cat's office, Ernest Miller
2: finds Scott Hall's contract.
0: <laughs> there <we go>. <laughs> oh, man, baby, I've been looking for you, baby. Woo, I got all the control now.
1: This was a good 20 minutes later, only three manila envelopes in his briefcase. <laughs> and he Just
0: now finds it. <laughs> Hey, look, Ernest Miller is nothing if not someone who is uh, detail obsessed. So I assume it took him, you know, 20 minutes to thoroughly read each document in each of those envelopes. So he, you know, Ernest Miller is is, uh, is a is a very deliberate man. If, if we've learned nothing else from this television program.
2: Backstage, Johnny the Bull is being tended to by trainers, but then Terry Funk walks up and helps him out as well. Elsewhere. Chavo Guerrero is looking for the MIA when he gets jumped by Rey Mysterio and the artist until G.I. Bro runs in for the save. After the break, G.I. Bro is doing his don't make me turn this car around voice as he berates the MIA for not taking things seriously. Bro says that with guys like Sting, DDP, Ric Flair, and Hogan out of the mix, it's their time to step up. Bro tells them to watch each other's back because he's on his own now. He then gives Rection his hat and says the general is in charge now, which I'm sure was news to Rection, who was never really not in charge of this group to begin with. <laughs> Canyon is then shown making his entrance on a monitor, and Bro says it's their job to check people like him. So, Nate, we're doing a little bit of retconning here, but yes. you know what? Whatever gets Booker out of this group, I'm totally fine with. It would have been interesting if we had had a uh, leadership struggle for the last couple of weeks, but we haven't really done that. Um... But yeah, I like this, and this is also something that WCW would do sometimes really well that WWE never does anymore, which is characters referencing other things that are happening in the show that they're not directly involved with. Mm. The fact that he says, all of these big-time guys are out, it's time for us to step up, I like that. WWE, you are in a box, uh, Seth Rollins can only talk about Sheamus and Cesaro you can only talk about the people you're currently in a feud with but I liked in WCW where it did feel a little bit more like we're all kind of you know going at this together and WWE you know at this time was doing it as well it's just something they've gotten away from uh, more recently but I actually really did uh, like this segment and the retconning that that they did
0: yes like to me this was a nice little send off if you will because I remember when we first talked about the Misfits in action and how I had such high hopes for them back in 2000 and those hopes were (laughs) those hopes were immediately let down I think in the very first segment we saw them in with Booker T Uh, so I like that this was kind of allowing Booker to go and fulfill his destiny as somebody who had a place higher on the card. And I also like kind of the hustle and flow moment we had here where Booker T was playing the part of Terrence Howard. And he's like, look here, man, I got to go away for a while, but you're in charge. Say it with me. General Erection, say I'm in charge. And General Erection looks back. I'm in charge. And I love that moment. And uh, now we don't have Booker involved with a comedy act that uh, is beneath him, quite frankly, at this point. The thing with
1: Booker T and MIA was it's a lot like uh, Robert De Niro when he was in Rocky and Bullwinkle. And (laughs) you just you feel terrible. But Booker's another one just going back to that Landstorm thing before where he's a man in a boy's world. And he was so far head and shoulders above everybody else, not just in this segment, but basically in every pre tape in terms of having the right energy and having uh, just the right look like that guy was was absolutely a star. And good, bad, or indifferent, whoever, you know, plucked him out and said, that's our guy, uh, made the right call.
0: Yeah.
2: So positively, Chris Canyon makes his entrance with all of the DDP manuri- with all the DDP mannerisms. He does the diamond with the fingers. He gets the pyro. He slumps in the corner. He's got a copy of Page's book.
1: <laughs>
0: Canyon promotes
2: the new book with a stream of DDP parodies.
0: They love me. They hate me. They'll never get tired of reading my new book, Positively, Tanya. Yeah! It's the kind of book you can't just read once. You gotta read it two times, two, time, two time.
2: Canyon then calls out anyone in the back who wants to feel the bang. G.I. Bro then rushes the ring and makes quick work of Canyon. Bro hits a sidekick, a spinaroonie, and then rips off his camo pants to reveal the traditional Booker T tights. G.I. <laughs> Bro is no more. The minute Russo is not at TV, they said this is fucking stupid. Get him far away from this shit and let's get him back to the guy that works. Um, Nate, I gotta say, this might already be my favorite episode of the year, just because of this happening.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed this segment because A, I am a unabashed Champagne, Chris Canyon slash Positively Canyon fan. And uh, it's always good to see Canyon pop up on these shows. Uh, But also, yes, this is continuing Booker's, I guess, graduation uh, from the midcard. Even though he's not quite a main eventer yet, you certainly see the markings. You certainly see the signs. And to Robert's point, and it's something that we've seen throughout these shows that we've done from the year 2000, there is a different gear, a different level of intensity and pace that Booker puts into his matches. And while they're not all great, there is something that sets them apart from, you know, some of the other guys on the card, like a Horace Hogan or even Hulk Hogan. Uh, and so, yeah, this, this was a fun little segment. And, uh, you know, it uh, furthers the, the education, the, the, the evolution, should I say, of uh, one Booker T.
1: I like how Canyon came out there in what was clearly a Dolph Ziggler wig. Um, I don't know how he got that, but it's it's spot on. I wasn't as enamored with Canyon's impression. It felt a lot like uh, when you see a Mad TV sketch where it just it felt slightly off and, and more amateurish than it was supposed to feel. Um, but yes, as soon as Booker came out, uh, this was, you know, once again, just a, a consummate professional, very entertaining, very high energy. And it was a memorable moment.
2: In the back, David Flair finds Daphne and asks if they can talk. Daphne responds by slapping him in the face. Horace Hogan then makes his entrance as we get replays of Goldberg destroying Hulk Hogan last week. In the back, Nash and Scott Steiner are shown discussing whether or not to run in during this match. Now, we are two weeks into the Goldberg heel turn, but nobody told this crowd, because when this dude's music hits, he got easily the loudest pop on this entire show, up and down. Now, unlike last week, he actually gets the full security guard entrance. However, since he's a heel, he now yells at his escorts.
0: Uh, okay, real quick, real quick, Brian, I... I, I... I do have a question, and I Mm -hmm. want to pose it to both you and Brother Robert because, uh, you know, you mentioned Russo kind of taking his ball and going home for a bit. Did they know exactly how long Russo was not going to be a part of the program?
2: They didn't. I think everyone kind of realized he was just kind of like – he didn't leave the company. He was just refusing to go to work. Um, He apparently – I think everyone also knew that he – had bought a very large house in Atlanta that he needed to pay for. And the WWE was never going to take him back despite what he, uh, you know, would say sometimes. So I think they knew that he was going to be back eventually. Um, Okay. I think that's why they're not taking, I I think they also, if you watch the show up and down, I think they're very smart to understand just how much they could do. Like we can't, you know, drastically, you know, turn Goldberg right back. Yes, because that that
0: was going to be my question. Like, if 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 you're Terry Taylor, if you're in that in that room with the production team uh, writing the show, do you take that step? Because obviously, clearly, people do not want to boo Bill Goldberg. Would you make that drastic call, not knowing you know exactly when Russo was going to come back?
2: I mean, I think if you look at it, uh, they certainly. I don't think they played into him being a heel all that much, (laughs) to to, to be honest. I mean, especially not in this match. But I think they, you know, they took their stabs where they could. You know, we'll take Pamela Polishuk off. Uh, Pops isn't going to be on the TV show this week. Uh, We're going to let matches breathe a little bit more. We're going to institute this no interference rule. And I think with Goldberg, I think they saw that as such a massive. um, And who knows? This might not have been just a Russo against the world type thing. There could have been a lot of people who honestly saw. Um, something in there. Plus, I mean, Nash was still having an influence, uh, you know, in the backstage and, you know, obviously they're clearly higher on Booker T as being the face of the company than Goldberg.
1: I think you guys are giving them a little too much credit. They (laughs) were, they were all in on Goldberg being a heel here, except for the way that this match was booked. And I Mm -hmm. think that was just due to ineptitude. First of all, you don't put Horace Hogan in there with Goldberg and expect Horace Hogan to get cheered. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Nothing about Horace's opening promo really made you want to, you know, back this guy. And then he goes out there and Goldberg eats his lunch. I I think Horace got maybe two or three moves of offense in. He was made to look like a complete fool. And then the only time that Goldberg, you know, kind of was like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be a heel is after the match when he goes to choke out Horace Hogan. Yeah. And Mark Madden just decides to say, Well, you know what? I guess the fans don't seem to realize that he's a heel. And it's like it's it's more tone deaf than the Roman Reigns babyface push that's been going on the last four or five years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I now understand why Vince thinks Roman Reigns gets a 50-50 split if WCW thought this was a heel reaction for Goldberg.
2: (laughs) Well, that was so weird because, yeah, I mean, it was a standard two-minute Goldberg squash. Horace got a chair at one point and got a little bit of, you know, offense. But he was booed for it. But, yeah, we got the spear, we got the jackhammer. um, And then when it was done, Goldberg, like, choked out Horace trying to get a boo, but the heel reaction just never came. It was like you're watching. it, It almost felt like the announcers were calling a completely different match. And as far as I can remember, as a kid, this was the first time that I saw a company actively trying to fight the reaction they were getting. Um, It's just weird that the reaction they were fighting was the only, like, the biggest reaction for the biggest guy, but, you know, we can't shit on WCW completely. WWE would do the exact same thing a year later and would spend an entire year trying to get people to boo the most popular guy in the business
1: they did but i think the difference is the wwe could have survived without steve austin and they showed that they could wcw had exactly one guy universally over as a babyface which was yeah. bill goldberg and they were they were obsessed with in this in this episode making him a heel and just from an economic standpoint if goldberg is going to sell you tickets and he's going to sell you merchandise and he's going to sell pay-per-view buys there is absolutely no financial or it to making him a heel other than maybe someone who's taller with long hair uh, and, and, and a beard who wants to be your top baby face uh, and will do whatever it takes to make that happen, hypothetically.
0: Yeah, and it's not like when uh, Hogan turned into Hollywood Hogan, where the fans were actively tired of the red and yellow. Goldberg was still hot, you know, as we saw in the episode where you were in at uh, Phillips Arena, like yep. little little Brian Mann was still amped about Bill Goldberg. The fans were still hyped on Bill Goldberg. And so this feels very reminiscent to the uh, Sting Hill turn that WCW tried to do. Like, yeah. it, there are certain people that the audience is not going to accept, uh, particularly at this time. Like, I think, you know, Robert's on to something in the fact that yeah Goldberg was still hot and it's. It's almost like the John Cena thing, where, where people want John Cena to be a heel, but if dude is moving merch and dude is getting butts and seats, so to speak, uh, why would you mess with that?
2: Backstage, Nash tells Steiner that the no interference rule might actually work in their favor. Nash then reminds Steiner to save his energy for his match, but Scott then grabs Medasia and says that she's his match for the night. <laughs> the cat makes his entrance with a Halliburton briefcase handcuffed to his wrist. Miller calls an Asian guy in the front row, Kung Fu, before going back to dancing, so I'm glad he was able to stop for that moment of casual racism. (laughs) Cat then goes to ringside and attaches the briefcase to Madden's arm, who desperately doesn't want it. Nash comes out and attempts to clothesline the cat, but Miller ducks. However, Miller still sells the move anyway, and Tony explains that he must have hit him on the top of the head. We then get Nash in full Hogan mode, it's just the greatest hits, knees knees and elbows in the corner. The Cat bails to the floor and calls for backup, but no one comes. Nash beats on uh, beats on him a little bit more. Miller attempts to wave the outside interference ban, uh, but it doesn't work. Back inside, Cat hits a low blow on Nash. Cat hits some kicks, but Nash comes back with a running clothesline. Nash hits the jackknife and covers Miller with one foot for the win. Um, it is worth noting that uh, Hulk Hogan is about to leave this company, and Nash did not take a single bump, so we might have uh, mm. something on our hands here, Nate. Uh, after the match, Nash gets the key from Miller and opens a briefcase attached to Madden. However, the only thing inside are 8x10s of Ernest Miller. Goldberg <laughs> then appears on the big screen with Scott Hall's contract. Goldberg tells Nash to claim it at the Bash of the Beach, and then he eats the contract. So... I guess Bill's going to shit it out, and they're going to fight for that, is the idea here. Um, I, I, this wasn't great, but I think it achieved what it sought out to do. And if Russo had written and booked this segment, it would have somehow ended with a David Flair general erection match. <laughs>
1: the highlight of this match, by by far, was one of the announcers referring to Kevin Nash as the sex <laughs> That would be Madden <laughs> if I had to guess. <laughs> Uh, that was that was amazing. The, everything they did with the with the briefcase was great old school. He the cat wearing the key around his neck and pretending like he was going to throw it into the crowd. Uh, it, it all it all kind of worked in a weird way. Uh, but again, because this is 2000, I, I made a note about the Kung Fu comment and then Bill mm-hmm. Goldberg referring to Scott Hall as Kevin Ash's girlfriend to play yeah. into phobia as well. Um, he only ate one page of the contract, which I believe still means the contract's in effect.
2: Okay, he didn't—he didn't eat the one that had the signatures on it. He That whole <laughs> signature in his belly—different, different situation.
0: It's a slow burn, Brian. You got to work up to that spot. <laughs> uh, but I—I I thought that Ernest Miller was good for what he was required to do in this. It—it it did seem very much like an old school heel manager, heel authority figure role, and that's why. I felt this happened too soon because this is really the first week yeah. of the Ernest Miller regime. And it's like, yeah, we want to see this guy get his comeuppance, but not 45 minutes later. Like you gotta make me wait for stuff like that. So I, I like the little reveal with the uh with the eight by tens. I'm always a sucker for Halliburton briefcages, which I've never seen outside of a professional wrestling context. <laughs> Uh, so, those things were good, but I definitely think this is something that probably could have been held off for, uh, you know, in, in, terms of Ernest Miller getting, uh, getting physical.
2: Yeah, I agree, but now that I think about it, I mean, this roster suddenly, uh, just over a couple of weeks, has gone from just jam-packed, bloated, to now, this shows, it's kind of a thin roster, uh, you know, now that we've, like, put some teams together, now that we've, um... You, you know, we, we got some tag teams thrown together. A lot of the top guys are gone. Uh, yeah. You know, David Flair's off doing his own thing now. Like, I'm thinking, like, what would you have done instead here?
0: I don't uh, know how WCW will recover from that. <laughs> <perfect> loss. <laughs> uh,
2: we go backstage where Mike Tanay interviews Kevin Nash and Scott Steiner. Nash reminds us that he's the only guy who's ever beaten Goldberg and that he has no problem beating his ass for Scott Hall's contract. So, this was a little bit of revisionist history on Nash's behalf because Bret Hart had actually beat Goldberg three times the previous year in their build, The Starcade. Uh, so, Taney then asks Scott about his title match. Steiner brags about his genetics and calls himself the actual chosen one.
0: In his mind, he's the chosen one. I'm the one with a genetic freak. I'm the one that the large arms. Would we'll you say I'm not the chosen one? Jeff Jarrett could kiss my ass.
2: The Filthy Animals then make their way out for our next match. It is a triple threat for the cruiserweight title between Rey Mysterio, Lieutenant Loco, and The Artist. Conan does his usual stick, and then Disco Inferno plays the hype man, a perfect preview of the podcast they would host 18 years later. The Misfits (laughs) and The Artist then make their entrance. Hoovy is on commentary, and I just couldn't help but notice how much Hooventut Guerrero sounds like Tommy Wiseau.
0: (laughs) This is gonna be now a juicy show. You show all the juices in the ring, and the juicy man is on the juice table. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did
1: not. Oh, hi, Mark.
2: Much like our six-man tag, this was really fast-paced, uh... Ray gets a leg drop on Chavo, but the artist makes the save. Chavo charges at the artist and gets back body drop to the floor. Ray then leaps on the artist and body scissors the artist out of the ring. Back in the ring, Ray hits a Bronco Buster to the artist. Ray goes for a superplex, but Chavo gets crotched on the top rope. Chavo then hits a Tornado DDT on the artist for the win. Um, All of this happened in... Less than two and a half minutes, uh, I would have questioned the allocation of time of some of these matches. Uh, after the match, Tigress grabs Major Guns so Paisley can hit her, but Guns ducks. This all leads to a pull-apart as all the men try to separate the women. Um, if it was up to me, this match probably could have used five more minutes and uh, one last person, m- notably the artist.
0: How, how dare you, Brian Mann! Yeah. Besmirch the good name of the artist formerly known as Prince. I again. you've
2: got to admit you. I've never heard you say a single positive thing about this guy in the ring. <laughs> <laughs>
0: hey, some some guys are sizzle, some guys are steak, and, and you know we got you know you got a porterhouse in there with Ray Mysterio, and and uh, maybe a a t bone with Chavo Guerrero, but. My man, the artist, he's not about that steak. He's not about wrestling. He's about a character and presentation, and that's what he brings to the table. Uh, He's like the, what is it, uh, cilantro? (laughs) (laughs) He's like the little, what's the little green sprig of of vegetable that they always throw on the side of the steak? He's the parsley? The
2: parsley. That's why he comes out with paisley. It's paisley and parsley.
0: Oh, wow. We're getting deep. We're getting deep here on Prince Ikea. Uh, But yeah, this match to me felt a lot like, the opening six man match. Like, this could have been something if they had given it, you know, even five more minutes. Uh, because you had two really great workers in there and Prince Ikea, who is, uh, you know, he's, he's not a great worker, but he's he's a, a great human being. And, and so I think this could have been so much more than it was, uh, which basically was just kind of a backdrop for Conan's promo and also the deal with the girls in the end. But again, it's good to see some of these younger guys get TV time because that has been in short supply the last few weeks.
1: My hot take, um, I hope you guys are sitting down for this, is in addition to Landstorm and Booker T, this Rey Mysterio kid is pretty good and probably has a future in the business. Mm. Yeah, I don't know about that look, though. Maybe if we can get him a mask. Uh, no, I like the uh, wrestling 11-year-old. I think that's, uh, <laughs> that works it's it's he looks he looks like if you played w w f no mercy and you made a bad creator wrestler where their <laughs> face is too small for the head that's Rey mysterio and then again, back when I was uh on creative not this was not my idea I was simply the the messenger I'm using the nuremberg defense uh, yeah. we had the we had the Mexicos and I oh. used to have to call our uh one of our production guys to make sure that they packed the lawnmowers oh, every no. week for television, so I feel like I I did such damage to Juventude's career, I can tolerate him uh, for two minutes. But again, I think you guys made the point perfectly. This should have been another two-segment match as opposed to David Flair wandering around looking for Daphne while she's sitting on what looked like dorm room furniture.
2: (laughs) Backstage,
1: David Flair is on his
2: knee asking Daphne to forgive him. She can't help herself saying she loves him and the two kiss. After the break... David walks Daphne to her car and says that he'll meet her at the hotel. David then comes back in the building and starts kissing Miss Hancock. Unbeknownst to them, Daphne has re-entered the building and is watching them make out on a monitor. So, you know, at least David picked up one thing from his father. It wasn't his promo abilities or his wrestling skills, but, uh, you know, he sleeps around. Uh, I mean, if nothing else, Nate, at least we're going back to this storyline. I mean, they, you know... They started it for zero reason. Uh, mm, mm. Uh, you know, weeks ago. There was no reason to do it when they did, but but we're we're back on it. We're back on the the Stacy Keebler David Flair tip.
0: Yeah, props to Terry Taylor and the crew for tying up these loose threads. And and you know, wrestling is often compared to or alluded to as male soap opera, but this even felt like a little too far for me. This felt like CW tween drama, like one tree hill. Or uh, Gilmore Girls. Sorry, Marcus Vandenberg. I know he's a huge fan of the Gilmore Girls. Uh, But it felt like, yes, they're plugging this drama in that I neither wanted nor needed. But at least they're following up on their own continuity. So I guess that's a plus.
1: David Flair got about five pre-tapes in this show, one of which where he's making out with Daphne and once with Miss Hancock. So I'm pretty sure he was actually booking this week's episode of (laughs) Nitro. I also love that, you know, you made the point before about how Booker T brought up what was going on in the show. In almost every segment, someone was either watching the show on a monitor or there was just a monitor, uh, which is a weird little thing that WCW did correctly. So it's every five feet, there's a television set and somebody's watching what's going on. So it it does make things feel a little more organic and probably explains most of the ratings uh, that Nitro got.
2: (laughs) They just all (laughs) those TVs on the arena. Though, which was a less deserving achievement of David Flair in the wrestling industry, his U.S. title reign or his legit relationship
1: with Stacy Keebler? Stacy Keebler made—it's weird. She made the worst decisions in who to date, probably in, in, in one of the worst decisions in wrestling history. I just realized what the worst one was. We're not going there. Um, and then recovered with George Clooney. Yes. <laughs> It's—I mean, she went—you know—WCW mid card, WWF mid card biggest actor on the planet. It's uh, a pretty
0: decent jump for Stacy. Hey, man, let's not throw shade at David Flair, because I know most of us in our lives, whatever field we're in, we would like to think that, you know, we're the Ric Flair of our field, or, or you know, maybe even the Booker T, or at least the Rey Mysterio of our fields. But the truth is, you know, most of us are, are average. Like, we're not great, we're not terrible, we're average. We're all David Flairs in, in our lives. And so for this man to not only... Break off the shackles of his lineage, but to be able to ascend to the heights of the U.S. title, to be able to ascend to the heights of dating one Miss Stacy Keebler, I have to give that man props. So this this, is, this goes out to you, David Flair, because I know you're listening uh, right now.
2: Nate, I like what you're thinking. David Flair should have David Flair's gimmick should have just been average David Flair, yes. and his whole thing is just wish fulfillment for the audience at
0: home. <laughs> yes david flair's the audience surrogate like he's just us man Like he doesn't have any real wrestling proficiency he can't really cut a great promo but he's here he shows up every week
2: tag champs chuck palumbo and sean Stasiak come out as the announcers remind us that the champions have never won a match their challengers for the night are tank abbott and rick steiner tank drives sean into the corner and gives him a spine buster rick then gets in and beats on Sean a bit, followed by a nice belly-to-belly suplex. Palumbo tags in and goes for a leapfrog, but he eats a suplex as well. Tank then leaves the apron and begins arguing with a fan who's holding a three-count sucks sign. (laughs) Tank then rips up the sign, jumps the rail, and chases away this obvious plant. So Rick is left to fight two-on-one. The champs then beat down on Rick Steiner, but he fights back. He gets a belly-to-belly to Chuck Palumbo. Stasiak then gets the Lex Flexer, but Rick cuts him off Rick then gives Palumbo a German suplex. Rick jumps off the top, but Sean slides the flexor to Palumbo, who hits Steiner. The champs then hit a double flapjack for their first ever successful title defense. Unfortunately, we've started the build to Tank Abbott joining three count as their (laughs) bodyguard, which is a shame because Nate, I mean, the Tank Abbott character, it's been start and stop. It's been mostly downhill with some brief glimmers of hope every once in a while. But I got to say, I think a tag title run with Rick Steiner might have actually rehabbed him a bit and would have allowed him to uh, season a little bit in the ring.
0: That's true. But, you know, you, you say, unfortunately, Brian, I would argue that this three count run that is uh, impending. like That is maybe what most wrestling fans who even remember Tag Habit That might be what they most remember him for is those comedy spots with three counts. So I guess, you know, it's it's glass half full, you know, because, yeah, Tank Abbott as a serious, credible, legit shoot fighting threat that that era is over. That day is gone. But Tank Abbott, hilarious comedy guy. That's that's on the way, Brian.
2: But the shame is that it's gone because of how badly they fucked it up. Like we've seen parts of this. guy. It's like, okay, don't have him cut a promo. But if you interview him backstage, like a sit-down interview, it's actually really good. And he's great at these short little knockouts. Uh, and I actually thought that match he had with Sid was not bad. Like, there's there's things to do with this guy. But it failed, partially because of the performer and where he was at. But it mostly failed because of how they booked him. And so, yeah, he's remembered for this ridiculous, stupid thing. But it also probably killed his career in the long run because he was never taken as a credible threat in pro wrestling ever again after that.
0: I was going to say, I am wondering, Robert, real quick, like in, in terms of somebody with that legit fighting baggage, uh, if, if you want to call it baggage, how do you kind of integrate them into the world that is known as professional wrestling and all the craziness that comes with it, but still give them an air of mystique and an era of legitimacy? I mean, there there's been
1: several documented cases of guys who cross over from, from UFC uh, and and enter a W. And they're able to carry it over. I think Ken Shamrock had yeah. a had a fantastic career, but at the same time, you look at someone like Dan Severin, who was never able to put all the pieces together uh, on a main stage and make it count. Tank Abbott, to me, his most memorable thing outside of three count was, you know, he was on an episode of Friends. Yep. So he has a <laughs> tiny bit of mainstream notoriety to him i think the challenge with tank abbott is he doesn't look like a ufc fighter he looks like you know like a kimbo slice style backyard fighter mm-hmm. yeah. and it's very tough to take a guy like that seriously on television and when you look at him next to rick steiner he looks like he's almost out of shape even though we know that's not necessarily the case mm.
2: well yeah that's the thing because unlike because Kimbo's kind of taller right so like even though you know Kimbo is a physically impending uh, or uh, an imposing threat, whereas Rick is oftentimes shorter than a lot of the guys he's wrestling.
1: Right. Um, and I think, that, you know, if you, if you look at the, the modern landscape um, of, of guys who've been successful to make that, that transition, I mean, obviously Brock comes to mind, but Brock had a wrestling background. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. There's a couple guys on the independent scene, uh, namely uh, Tom Lawler and Matt Riddle, who are still active in the UFC. But when they go into a, a wrestling ring, uh, say in MLW, uh, they are able to kind of create a, a wrestling MMA hybrid where you can do some of the ground and pound with pro wrestling moves. And I don't know that Tank Abbott really ever put that together. He can, he can punch and it's going to look good, but I don't see that guy coming off the top rope.
2: No. We go backstage to find Dale Torborg, not the demon, But the man who plays him, Dale Torborg, with his real-life girlfriend, Asia, who who we have not seen on television in months. Torborg says that he's been in therapy for the last two months to try to get rid of the demon, but Vampiro has brought him back out. Dale explains that the two of them can't be in a normal relationship until the demon is done for good. So he gives Asia the demon costume and tells her to get rid of it. She agrees, ignoring the fact that this costume is how Dale makes his living. (laughs) Meanwhile, Vampira watches on a monitor elsewhere. Now, this was a year before Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker would have their mystique totally ruined by their real-life partners joining them on screen, so WWF really could have learned a lot had they been watching Nitro at this point.
0: Yeah, I I haven't done it all episode, Brian, but I think this is absolutely necessary. I gotta throw a flag on the play. (laughs) Because again, I understand we've got a new creative team here, but this retcon of the demon Dale Tolborg not being somebody that's just this huge kiss fan, and now he's he's kind of like Bruce Banner, where he's fighting the the other guy inside of him, and he he doesn't want to be the demon because he doesn't want to live that life, and he he just wants to to be a good uh, boyfriend to to Asia, and he you know he he wants to leave the demon behind him. I, I didn't need all that. I didn't need this deep backstory with Dale damn Torborg and the demon. I loved every minute of this.
1: I want, <laughs> I want to know more. I was so engrossed because it was, I started watching this as a slow motion car wreck and then I'm going, wait, so he, he's inhabited by him, but you have to get rid of the car. Like, this was fascinating. I, wanted, I I want to see this play out more than anything else that I want to see on Nitro or in the history of wrestling. It's what is going to happen next with this man trying to shed the kiss demon um, it was oh it was it was it was the best thing uh, on this show by by so many leaps and bounds um i, I can't I can't say enough about it
2: <laughs> I wish you'd like leaned into his his future career as a baseball trainer and he tried being like a an Abe Knuckleball Schwartz character for a few weeks where like he comes out with his face painted like a baseball, uh but Vampiro keeps pulling him back to to, to the dark side.
1: The best thing about oh. Dale is uh he was he was a, a a coach down here for the Marlins and we went out to a game and somebody kept yelling Kiss Demon at him <laughs> and the look of disgust in his face every time he turned around um was was that was amazing. The best thing about South Florida is we are a haven for the most random ex wrestlers uh, just living down here. So I I, I, I run into uh, fake Sting works at the University mm. of Miami as a as a as a scientist. Um, what? Uh, <laughs> well, he's working in cloning. You know, he's trying to make another another Sting. Exactly. <laughs> um, they they merge it with a sheep. It's pretty it's pretty gross. Uh, we had and then at, at a couple of Panther games, I've run into the Headbangers just in regular clothing, Gangrel in full vampire garb, because that's what he wears all the time, Mm. and the Warlord. (laughs) I could have the best Royal Rumble of all time, Uh. solely on South Florida talent.
2: Uh. In the arena, Vampiro comes out with a mic in his hand and says that he thought he had a lot in common with the demon. What were their shared interests? And I quote... Makeup, rock and roll, and fire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, no. You left off the last one. Mayhem. (laughs) Mm. But now Vampiro hears that the demon is going away, so he calls out Del Torborg and Asia so they can have a going away party. God of Thunder plays, but Vampiro tells him to cut the demon's music because it's Del Torborg, not the demon coming out. Vamp asks Torborg if he feels empty when a part of him goes away. The lights then go out for a second, and Asia disappears. The lights then go out again, and this time Vampiro is gone. Vamp then appears on the big screen, driving a hearse away from the arena. The demon then runs to the back. Um, Guys, this is how you don't do a supernatural angle. (laughs) They're trying their fucking taker shit here. Uh, This lasted about 90 seconds. It was way too brief. It was over before it began. I don't totally hate you know, Dale Torborg fighting the demon part of him, but... Here's where we are. Uh, we got Vampiro, like, just pulling a single white female on the demon.
1: So there was something that they mentioned uh, on a replay from a Thunder that I must have missed where the, the kiss demon locked Vampiro in a coffin, which cost Vampiro his soul. Yes. Which is why Vampiro was coming after. Everything about that sentence sounds like I'm on drugs, and I, I'm trying to figure out what exactly happened.
2: Well, as we've established, we do not watch the Thunder, so it is up to them to explain it to us, and they did a terrible job.
1: Okay, so so everybody was as, as lost on this as as me. It's like I woke up in the middle of a lecture.
0: Um, yeah, the crazy thing is, all of this is following arguably Vampiro's biggest angle in his WCW run, and that was the burning of Sting. And if you're trying to make this a character that that has some stakes, a character that we take. Seriously, I don't know if putting him into a feud with the demon is the way to do it. But hearing Robert's enthusiasm for that demon segment earlier, <laughs> like now that's all I want. I want like weekly demon updates. Like maybe we go to Dale and Asia's house and she, he wakes up and she's just sitting there looking at him shaking. And what's what's wrong? That's, that's my Dale Torbroke impression. Like, what's wrong, girl? And then she's like you're doing it again. And then he looks over and on the pillow it's like smeared demon makeup and <laughs> we get like this 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 journey that he has to go on. I, I'm You you have convinced me, Robert. I am all in for uh, the the Dale Tolberg as Bruce Banner uh, in, in this WCW universe. I fully thought when they cut
1: away to Vampiro driving off that they were going to do the Triple H Stephanie test thing where you find oh. out that like Vampiro driving off but they're, <laughs> and they're secretly a... married. They got married in Billings, <laughs> Montana. Uh, <laughs> Oh. Shane
2: Douglas, Bam Bam, and Chris Candido then come out, but WCW is not legally allowed to call them triple threat. Douglas says they're going to take things by force and that his partners are setting their sights on the tag titles. It should be pointed out, though, that Candido's arm is in a sling and he's wearing a cast. Still, for some reason, they're putting him in the ring to, to shoot angles. Douglas then challenges Buff Bagwell to any kind of match he wants at Bash of the Beach. So they've set it up, Nate. We're going to get a crazy stipulation at Bash of the Beach. What kind of match do you think they end up having?
0: Ooh, um, I'm hoping Iron Man match.
2: Uh, these two end up having a straight wrestling match at the pay-per-view with no stipulation <laughs> attached. So I don't know why, why Douglas said this. Buff then comes out, and he brings out his partners, Chronic. The same men that he ran down last week, but whatever, he's a babyface now. Douglas and Clark start things off as Buff begins a Franchise Sucks chant. In the crowd, we see a Goldberg Fierce Triple H sign. Uh, talk about long-term booking there. Douglas goes up top and gets thrown down. Clark then hits a Uranagi and tags in Adams. Adams hits a full Nelson Slam for it too. Buff then tags in, but Douglas runs away and tags Bigelow in. Bigelow, wrestling in a Nitro t-shirt, works over Buff. This allows Shane to tag back in and go to town on Buff, Buff comes back, though, with a double-hook DDT, which Scott Hudson calls a Kenta Kobayashi DDT, the only time the comparison has ever made between these two performers. (laughs) Hot tags then to Adams and Bigelow. Chronic hits the high times on Bam Bam, but the referee is distracted. Candido then pulls a pipe from his sling and hits Clark with it. Buff tags in, hits a blockbuster for the pin on Bam Bam. After the match, Douglas blindsides Buff and hits the Pittsburgh Plunge. Chronic makes the save. Um... Again, nothing too special here. Uh, I questioned why this was the match that got over six minutes, but whatever. Um, but for the time, I don't think anyone embarrassed themselves here, and Buff actually seemed to be uh, given half a shit.
1: So this was another one of those glaring things, because Shane Douglas comes out, and the first thing he says is, Billings, Montana, take a look at greatness. So everybody, and there must have been a big sign in the back like to really plug from Billings, Montana. Uh, the, it's the first thing he's, like, maybe you get the arena for free if you keep mentioning where you are. I mean,
2: to be fair, I looked it up. Billings, Montana
1: is the largest city in, in Montana. So, they're the so they have 35 to 40 people. Um, <laughs> I also, Tony Schiavone, God bless him, because this is this is when Schiavone starts to slide into contracts are really hard to break and I just got to go out there and do this. Scott Hudson says, you know, it's the Kenta Kobashi DDT. And he goes, well, in Japan, they call it the Buff DDT. <laughs> like, it is just, it's just full-on, I don't care what's going on. You, please fire me. I, I can probably get work elsewhere. Um, the, the booking on the finish here was really strange, considering Terry Taylor was the guy behind it, because Chronic runs, runs to go catch Chris Candido. Um, so, it's too good. so they've left Buff Bagwell alone in a one-on-two situation. And Bigelow winds up eating the pin. And then afterwards, Shane Douglas comes in and jumps him. And Mark Madden said something like, oh, he, he was lying in wait until after the match was over. Yeah. And I hate to question WCW booking because I think that's what turns you into sand. But why in God's name would, would they ever want to let Buff Bagwell get the win here, especially if you're Shane Douglas? It just It made less than no sense if you're watching the show.
2: Yeah, it's, it seems weird. Like, why are we creating a reason for Chronic to not be there if we're not going to do the outnumbered thing? I, yeah. um, I'm going to say John Laurinaitis was not involved in this finish, and uh, he had punched out early for the evening.
1: I also like that when Chronic comes back for the save, their music plays again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: this, man, you know, we talk so often, Brian. This, I think this uh, entire run, you know, if we wanted to have a subtitle for Keep It 2000, Ah, uh, besides the podcast on a poll, you know, to to go back to Roberts, uh, bringing up Mad TV earlier, I think this show could be called Lowered Expectations, because there's so many things on this show that I I remember fondly with rose-colored glasses, if you will. Like I I, I remember liking MIA a, a, a whole lot, and through watching this these shows, they weren't that great, and I remember. Being very excited that they were reforming the Triple Threat in WCW, and one weekend, and they're nothing special. Like you would think that if you are able to put these people together, and you're going to go through the trouble of making, you know, these kind of veiled ECW illusions, you would, uh, you know, you would give them something to do, which makes them feel credible, but. They felt kind of like a joke here, and so yeah, I have no faith for the triple threat going forward. I have no faith for uh, Babyface Buff Bagwell, even though I know that's your man's Brian. But uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm just sitting that he's sitting here now, uh, hoping that my memories of Lance Storm being really great uh, aren't tainted, aren't aren't just rose-colored, and they they actually were good.
2: It is main event time. The cat accompanies special referee. Mike Awesome to the ring and then gets on commentary. World Champion Jeff Jarrett gets the first entrance, always a good sign that your champ is over. As Steiner makes his entrance, Hudson says that Scott should have been the world champion in 1991, but don't worry, he isn't past his prime. Steiner gets on the mic and tells the cat he sucks because tonight's matches haven't been exciting.
0: As commissioner, you're supposed to make the matches exciting as possible. So I'm here to tell you, you suck. See, if I was commissioner, since I'm standing to the most beautiful girl in the ring, I'd have like a panties on a pool match. I'd like to see that. Or a freak on a leash match. You catch it, she's got to spread
2: At home, Vince Russo grabbed his notebook. Scott Steiner uh, starts things off with a -a tilt-a-whirl suplex. Steiner then clotheslines Jarrett out of the ring. Jeff gets a chair and whacks Scott. Medeja then checks on Scott, and the... And the cat says to get that hoochie out of here. Hudson corrects him and says that she's a freak, not a hoochie. These two then brawl through the crowd before getting back into the ring. Uh, It's all Steiner just, you know, just dominating this guy until Jeff hits a low blow. Jarrett gets Steiner into a sleeper hold, but Steiner reverses into a vertical suplex, and both men are down. Austin begins the standing 10 count, but Steiner gets up and hits a power slam for a 2. Steiner then locks in the recliner, but the cat has declared this an illegal hold. Awesome tries to break the hold and then Steiner, and then finally does by hitting Steiner in the back with a chair. Jarrett covers Steiner, but Scott kicks out. Awesome then joins in on the beatdown of Scott Steiner. Jarrett goes to the floor and Steiner suplexes Awesome and puts him in the recliner. This allows Jarrett to bring a guitar into the ring, break it on Steiner's back and get the three count. After the match, Scott puts the cat in the Steiner recliner Jared and Awesome then run in, but Steiner takes care of them. Goldberg hits the ring and spears Steiner as the ring fills with trash. He finally gets a couple of boos for taking out Scott Steiner. Kevin Nash hits the ring and he clears house, but Goldberg bails before he can get his hands on him. Um, again, not totally awful, uh, you know, even though you did have, you know, the, the nonsensical Goldberg attempting to be a heel at the end.
0: Hmm. My main thought on this, Brian, man, was why, I mean, I mean we know why, but why was uh, Kevin Nash Goldberg the program that we're leading to? Because I was much more invested at the end of this match in seeing Goldberg and Steiner. Like, to me, those are the guys that jumped off the screen. Like, this wasn't a great match, but now you had Steiner and Jarrett, two guys in there that know what they're doing. Uh, they could put together a, a decent TV match, and then that's what this was, and but at the end of the match, I was like, man, I'm so much more invested. If, if we're going to do this heel Goldberg thing, why not have him versus Steiner? Because Steiner is Steiner's kind of like an inverse. He's like the baby face that we're cheering, even though if you look at his characteristics, he's not really a good guy. While Goldberg is the heel that we're booing. But if you compare him to Steiner, he's actually probably the better human being. So the better option was to was to go with
1: Nash and Goldberg at least in Kevin Nash logic world, because if Nash wins, Scott Hall comes back. And in his mind, the biggest act in the world is Hall and Nash as the outsiders. Mm. And so he's convinced the fans are going to boo the hell out of Goldberg because they care more about seeing Hall and Nash together than they do about Bill Goldberg. Mm. It's it, you know, And getting in the mind of Kevin Nash is, is terrifying on my part. But I, that's that's probably why... You know they went exactly what they did. Um, th- this segment was was a quintessential old school WCW. It had Tony Schiavone say say what a swerve at one point, which was a <laughs> highlight for me. Uh, it ended with a we're at a time. Um, there was a nice <laughs> little Easter egg in there when they came back from break. They were plugging the uh, the WCW uh, web show mm-hmm. with uh, a, a Jeremy Borash. Uh, he mispronounced his name. Uh, which is which is fine. It happens. Uh, you know, Brian mispronounced my name at the beginning of the show, so it's a. Con- <laughs> keep am so keeping the
2: streak alive. For- I'm keeping the streak alive.
1: <laughs> I love it, but so I, I definitely enjoyed that. I like the fact that when Scott Steiner was booking, um, his his thing is like a oh, panties on a pole or a freak on a leash match. He then went into the way that you win a freak yeah. on a leash match, which was uh, you got to catch them and you got to spread them. Yeah. So it was kind of like a perverted Pokemon. Um, <laughs> I also love at one point, Jeff Jarrett, uh, the crowd chanting Jarrett sucks and they're on television and he's a character and he just looks right into the camera. And, and I I will say it slowly so you can bleep it out. He just goes, fuck all you motherfuckers. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that. (laughs) And and I was like, you're a, you've been in this business for a long time now. You know, this is on television. Why in God's name would you say that?
0: It just, it was, it was, it was fantastic. Um, God bless Jeff Jarrett. Hey, Billings Montana can bring that out of anybody, man. When you're in the Mecca of Montana, you know, strange things happen.
2: So yeah, it sounds like overall a fairly it's a positive new direction for the company. Uh it will not last forever, Nate. You and I, we need to savor it while we got it. Uh but even uh, on an episode uh that was overall pretty positive, we still got to pick our silver lining. That one thing that completely unvarnished was a positive. So you know, we're we're not really you know cocking our heads on this one, but Robert, you're, you you can go first. What was your highlight
0: of this episode?
1: I mean, I hate to steal the the obvious one, but it was definitely the the debut of Mister Lance Storm.
0: Yeah, that's that was on my list. Uh, so I guess to to be different, uh, I won't go the debut of Lance Storm, which was awesome, but I will go with. uh G.I. Bro's honorable discharge. As we <laughs> saw... <laughs> we saw the uh, G.I. Bro character coming to an end and Booker T uh, coming back and, and getting back on the road to becoming the star that we uh, know he will eventually become.
2: I mean, I think it says a lot for the quality of this episode that we are all able to have three different silver linings and be proud of all of them. And mine's going to be Ernest the Cat Miller. Uh, <laughs> Ernest Miller is a great television character, and I think that um, unlike the last few weeks of Russo and Bischoff putting themselves over and constantly belittling the performers and getting the best of those performers, uh, Eric Bischoff beat Terry Funk, uh, Vince yeah. Russo uh, beat mm-hmm. Ric Flair and shaved his head. Uh, here we have a, 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 com- uh, a commissioner who's just a nuisance, just a comedic nuisance He's not getting that much heat on him, but he's not supposed to. He's just supposed to sort of be an annoying foil for the baby faces and he takes a back seat to the Mike Awesomes and the Scott Steiners, which I really and the Goldbergs, which I really appreciated. He's there to, to be annoying. he's a pawn. he will operate in the favor of the of the uh, of the heels, but he's not making it all about himself. So I was I was very happy uh, that he was the one who was anchoring the show from a, an authority figure uh, point of view. Ooh. But uh, Robert, we got to thank you so much for for coming on the show. This is the second episode uh, you've watched, and I feel like this was a bit of redemption uh, for the previous episode uh, uh, that that you saw. So, if if after this people still want more uh, more of you in their life, where can they find you?
1: All right, so a couple of things that I will I will plug away here, uh, as as the whore that I am, uh, you can follow me on. Uh, at WW Creative underscore Ish. I'm watching every episode of Raw, every episode of SmackDown, every pay per view live tweeting. Uh, there's content that I put out there every day. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast or if you hate this podcast, you should still follow <laughs> me on Twitter. Um, two uh, events that I will I will promote um, coming up. Uh, you'll you'll be able to watch on video on demand uh, MLW's Road to the uh, World Championship. It's it's the rebirth of a promotion that was uh, that was around in the early 2000s. Uh, we have three shows up now at MLW.TV. TV. Uh, each one is about two hours and 45 minutes. It is not uh, like watching an episode of Nitro. Uh, we are we are very cognizant of that. It is it's great wrestling. It's coherent, logical uh, storylines, and it's a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, and the last thing I will plug is uh, the Florida Panthers down here in beautiful. Sunrise, Florida, uh, a stones throw from Fort Lauderdale, Miami, mean, and Boca. I'm paid to say that uh, we are hosting our second <laughs> annual pro wrestling night on March seventeenth, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, cool. If you come on out, we have we are setting up a ring outside of the arena. We will have an matches before the doors open. You and Dale, Tor- uh, to come-
2: Dale Torborg got to talking.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm coming out <laughs> as the Kiss Demon. Uh, I have inhabited me. Uh, and my, my wife, Asia, will be there next to me uh, supporting. And then uh, then you get to watch the Florida Panthers take on the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, and then, after the game, but wait, there's more. Uh, if you go to floridapanthers.com slash wrestling, uh, it's a three-for-one. You, you get the wrestling, you get the hockey game, and the Something to Wrestle with podcast with Bruce Pritchard Ooh. and Conrad Thompson live in the arena. Ooh. And if you get the enhanced package, again, on St. Patrick's Day, all you can eat, all you can drink, beer one and soda.
0: Ooh.
1: I mean, it is it is uh, a Mike Awesome deal if I've ever heard one. Um, <laughs> I, I I hope uh, I hope to see anybody that's that's within the state of Florida or just wants to fly down for what's going to be uh, a a fantastic uh, the, the best melding of hockey and wrestling since the Goon.
0: <laughs> Very cool.
2: So. Thank you to Robert once again. And thank you to you, the listener, for completing another experiment with us. Uh, if you haven't already, please rate and subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher and pretty much anywhere you're finding podcasts these days. If you have feedback, you can send it to keepit2000pod at gmail.com. And if you want more of me, I am at Brian Maxman all over the internet. Nate, as always, uh, I'm going to toss it over to you. Give the good word to the people. Hold them over until our next trial.
0: Yes, again, I want to send a shout out to everybody for completing another experiment with us. Uh, Big up to all the postmarks out there. I also want to send a shout out to Brother Robert for once again stepping aboard the Satellite of Hate and uh, giving us his knowledge and his insight and his opinions on this episode and also letting me know that NWO Sting is a scientist, which is like the the best thing I've heard all day and I'm not (laughs) going to be in a wormhole looking up the work of NWO Sting in the scientific field. But, uh, yeah, this is the time of the show where I like to let people know some positivity and and let them know what's going on in their lives. And also, if you want positivity on your Internet, check me out at in the number eight, M-O-Z-A-I-K, at name Mosaic on Twitter. Uh, But, yeah, I I think I've got to bring this all back, bring this all full circle. So we're going to leave you this week with the words of the late, great Aaliyah and tie it into our experience this week with WCW. I'm into you you into me, but I can't let it go so easily. Not till I see whether this could be an eternity or maybe just a week. Our chemistry, it's off the chain. It's perfection now, but will it change? This ain't a yes. This ain't a no. Just do your thing, Nitro. We'll see how it goes.
1: WCW Champion.
0: That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in, because of bullshit like this. This. This.